Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded March 29th and April 2nd, 2023. And welcome to the Spring of Discontent. While leaders in the capitals of Europe and America promise to carry on the Ukraine proxy war no matter the price, the people are already in the streets protesting the real and rising costs of that belligerence. For Canadians, whose government is already full-throatedly behind the bellicose stance against Russia, prospects of an expanded war against China and Iran, battles by sanction in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and elsewhere, there is too Haiti. Last week, the Trudeau Liberals blithely announced another $100 million to be delivered to the tiny island nation's military and police effort to keep the rest of population under heel. This on top of millions already delivered. It's almost as if Ottawa believes the fatted tax goose's golden eggs will never flag. Eve Angler is an independent Montreal-based journalist and author. He's written 12 books on Canadian foreign policy, including Canada in Haiti, Waging War on the Poor Majority, co-authored with Anthony Fenton. His recent article, Canadian Government Prioritizes War Over Climate Crisis, is a troubling portrait of a country few here in our home and native land would recognize. Eve Angler in the first half. And just what is Canada's place in the world? Generations of us have been taught we are global agents of good, fair-minded, and justice-seeking. You know, wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, we'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, etc., etc. It'd be a great story if only it were true. Prasanna Shamagathis completed an advanced degree at one of Canada's world-class universities, but found, beyond Canada's two solitudes, another bifurcation, one not in the curriculum, separating the real from an imagined nation. And so, he says, he set out on an epic three-year journey of discovery from coast to coast to coast and across the trackless prairies. He documented his Canadian quest in the film series Truth to the Powerless, an investigation into Canada's foreign policy. Prasanashan Magathas and the hunt for Canada's elusive identity in the second half. But first, Eve Engler and Trudeau of the Tropics, taking Haiti. Welcome back to the show, Eve. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's always my pleasure. You know that. Well, well, Eve, before we tackle Justin's uh, Haitian adventures, you reported recently in an article titled Pro-Israel and Ukraine Groups Use Identity Politics to Attack Free Speech about an effort to cancel a lecture you were scheduled to deliver at King's College in London, Ontario. Uh, now, Eve, why would anyone want to silence you? Good question. I, I don't know. It's <laughs> shouldn't everyone want to want to hear what I have to say? No. Yeah, it, basically, it was an event on uh, Canada's historic ties to Palestinian dispossession. And the Ukrainian student group on campus put out a statement basically saying or explicitly saying that that I was a Russian propagandist and uh, my event should be uh, canceled because it, it would uh, potentially lead to violence. Uh, against Ukrainian students on campus. It was pretty uh, out there, uh, but um, unfortunately, the political climate on the uh, NATO proxy wars in Canada is pretty out there as well. Um, So it was very much an example of a Ukrainian student group following the sort of playbook of of the uh, Zionist organizations, which is to to say that... uh, any uh, challenging of their political views is a, you know, sort of a, a hate uh, instance of hate. Um, it was a similar method, similar tactic uh, six weeks or two months ago now, I guess, um, when we had an event at, at Carleton. They tried to shut it down. And then there was a couple articles afterwards basically saying, going after the PERG, the, the public interest research group that had 
all they had really done is book the room for this event on on paths to peace in Ukraine. And uh, they booked the room for the Ottawa uh, Peace Council, and uh, and they were saying that the the PERG should be uh, should have its funding uh, cut from uh, students because they had just you know booked this room for the Peace Council, which they've been like doing for years and years. Uh, yeah, so- well, you were you were attacked in that instance by a guy named Matthew Selinger, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and he he said he called you. He says Eve Angler is a quote master of historical revisionism that runs in line with r- Russian propaganda, and he also said that the Oberg should be held to account for allowing um, the hateful and vilifying rhetoric. Uh, of the the meeting that you had scheduled and that went ahead in this instance, what was the title of that that event again? I believe it was the uh, the path towards peace in Ukraine. Um, hateful. That that yeah, sounds just very, horrendous. Very hateful stuff. <laughs> but but, it, but, but it, it went ahead. All of all of these meetings did go ahead, though, right? They did. They all did go ahead. They, you know, and, and to be honest with you, I mean, these weren't in the case of the Carlton event. It was like planned four or five days beforehand there was i don't know 25 people that showed at at king's college maybe it was more like 50 people but again that event was about palestine it wouldn't i wouldn't even have touched on ukraine except for the fact they put out this uh statement and i actually did an event at ham at mcmaster in hamilton uh, the day before and there was also uh not as doesn't seem as formal of an effort to shut it down but the security got involved and stuff but yeah it's a it's a pretty remarkable climate i mean you know i i uh i posted a uh a clip where i asked uh justin trudeau on sunday here in montreal at this greek parade uh why he keeps ramping up the proxy war uh with russia and uh and these these establishment this guy from the mcdonald laurie institute slams this as like uh this out there crazy uh, uh just a just a fu trudeau people and same thing when there was a protest against uh, uh joe biden's visit to ottawa uh i tweeted out about it same person from the mcdonald laurie institute which is you know a supposedly respectable uh, uh think tank uh he, you know he framed a protest against the u.s president as just a some sort of like wild out there kind of right wing, right wing, left wing coming together in this, I mean, you know, protesting the U.S. war in Vietnam, protesting uh, U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq, protesting contra U.S. contra war against Nicaragua. I mean, there's a long history of protesting U.S. militarism by Canadians. And so the, to f- reframe uh, this stuff is all kind of like you know not as you know anti-war and not as you know a real effort at 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 understanding what's actually going on in Ukraine and not just the sort of Russia bad uh, NATO good kind of uh, framing that we get in our media. It's um, it's considered you know really marginal and so and so these Ukrainian student groups on campus even though that's like, you know, 25, 40, 50 people showing up at these events, they're trying to shut them down. Personally, it seems almost, you know, just ignore it rather than, um, but but I think it's like they, they fear that if you get a, give a little space to, to uh, people questioning the dominant narrative, then maybe that will start snowballing. And so, and so what they want to do is, of course, just uh, not even have that, uh, at that discussion. But I think it's very much reflective of the, of the political climate where they feel comfortable to, you know, explicitly call for shutting down of events about the path towards uh, 
towards peace. Well, it sounds like full spectrum dominance uh, of the the political debate. For sure, that's they 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 feel like that that you know they they have that and they want to enforce that by by making sure that uh, you know a dozen or two dozen students don't hear a hear a different perspective. And did you say that was the McDonald Laurier Institute that talked about left and right coming together in criticizing you? Yeah, it's Kolga. Um, uh, is it? I think Marcus Kolga, I believe. He, he's actually he had, he heads up the set up the disin the disinfo program at McDonald McDonald Laurier Institute uh, established maybe two or three years ago, and that at that time it was more focused on Russia, you know, intervening in Canada for disinfo. Now, of course, it's sort of China. It's sort of shifted towards China. That was, of course, or maybe not surprisingly funded by the U.S. Uh, embassy. That's who provided the seed funding to the McDonald Laurier Institute to uh, to help Canada uh, oppose, you know, foreign disinformation. You know, when it's the U.S. funding it, of course, it's not it's not uh, foreign uh, intervention. But when it's, uh, you know, Russia or China, then it's um, foreign intervention and foreign disinformation. But yeah, so this is this is the climate. It's, uh, you know, imperative that we do what we can to break break through uh, this climate, I I I know at at University of Victoria, there's been a real campaign against the Young Communist League, uh, which is on on this issue from the Ukrainian groups. Um, I think that one of the things that should be done in the fall is that um, with the new semester at universities, should be a uh, you know national tour to as many campuses as possible to organize events to really kind of uh, shove it right in their faces and say, no, we're gonna we're gonna have these events on campus and and you know you can come and you can criticize but we're not going to shut us down but uh definitely have to kind of puncture the uh, the uh, one-sided uh, uh media sphere on this the last time you and i spoke was in early february and and on that same program i featured ty and Cherpushek and uh, tyson strandland both canadians of of um ukrainian descent that were caught in the maelstrom of the UVic debate back then. And I, I, I haven't followed up, actually. I, I'm, I'm not sure what became of it, but they were taking a, a lot of heat uh, at, at the time, at least. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Gorilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Eve Angler. Eve's an independent Montreal-based journalist and author. He's written a dozen books on Canadian foreign policy, including Canada and Haiti, Waging War on the Poor Majority. That's with Anthony Fenton. His recent article, Canadian Government Prioritizes War Over Climate Cri- uh, Crisis, is a troubling portrait, I say, of a country few here in our home and native land would recognize. Well, another issue that I wanted to talk to you about, and you covered in that article too, is uh, what's going on in Haiti. I said in the introduction, Eve, that the the Ottawa must think that the 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 gold egg laying goose that is the tax uh, uh, revenue craw collectors is a, is an endless font of, of lucre. Uh, the way that they're throwing the money around, and just last week they announced a hundred million more to be doled out to. Haiti's police and military. What's going on? Well, uh, the U.S. Joe Biden um, was in Ottawa partly to press Canada to lead a foreign military mission to Haiti. That's something that's been on the agenda for about it's good eight months now, really, when Canada began the process of building international support for that. It was uh, stymied, I think, in significant part because Russia and China have have been unwilling to go along with the U.S. push at the uh, uh, Security Council for a uh, United Nations um, uh, mission. 
and the Caribbean countries and other uh, Latin American countries aren't keen without uh, a UN um, force under UN umbrella. And so Canada has been right at the center of this process now for, you know, like I said, months and months. And so they've, you know, they've sent by aircraft to spy over Haiti. They've sent, they just sent two naval vessels off the coast. And so, uh, but they don't want to, they don't want to set an actual military force. And so they made a big announcement of another $100 million to the Haitian police. You know, I've been very critical of uh, Canada's role with the Haitian police now going back two decades, because basically after overthrowing the elected government in 2004, well, first of all, before overthrowing the elected government in 2004, they worked to undermine the Haitian police. So there was a sort of fledgling police force that was actually being attacked by the uh, the rebel forces from the Dominican Republic that were paramilitaries, former Haitian soldiers that were working to destabilize the elected government. And so at that time, in the early 2000s, the the U.S. and Canada were trying to weaken the Haitian police because it, it, it was, you know, to a certain extent defending the elected government. And there was, a, I think, a genuine effort to, to try to have a, a, you know, a somewhat functioning police force. And, and you know, we can debate police forces kind of at a general level and whether we want to, you know, defund the police. But but in the case of Haiti, I mean, the history is of, is these these uh, policing forces and military security forces have really just been like tools of, of political intervention, usually by the U.S. Uh, and that's certainly been the case since the U.S. occupation of 1915 to 34, where they created the modern Haitian, uh, Haitian military. And they use that to overthrow government. So anyways, in the early 2000s, there was a sort of fledgling force that was protected, you know, it was the defended the, the elected government from these paramilitary attacks and Canada, U.S. worked to undermine it. And then after the coup, they they integrated all these former military, all these people with terrible human rights records that had been you know, basically tools of Washington and tools of the Haitian elite. They integrated into the Haitian police force and, and that force killed, you know, hundreds, thousands even in the two years of the coup government from 2004 to 2006. And then it, it continued on and it's sort of, you know, been the tool of, of uh, in part of elite and, and foreign influence uh, in the country. Now, so fast forward to today, the unfortunate situation is that the security situation in Haiti is, has disintegrated to such an extent that you can make a case that the police force is, you know, somewhat progressive, right, to, or, or to put it differently, to build up the repressive apparatus of the Haitian state, i.e. the police, that that, in fact, has somewhat of a progressive uh, dimension to it because the alternative is, is, is so, so grim. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of complications within that. There's all kinds of ties between the gangs that have all kinds of influence and the Haitian police. And there's, you know, uh, it's still a very repressive apparatus. They still, you know, kill peaceful demonstrators. They still kill journalists reporting on them, et cetera, et cetera. But the situation, again, has disintegrated so much. So, but the Canadian government announced another $100 million in aid to the police. It's it's not, it's, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm kind of somewhat agnostic on it. Not that I, certainly not, don't support it. Uh, I wouldn't be, you know, harshly critical of it like I would be in the past because, like I said, things have gone so sour. Um, obviously, if you broaden the political context to understand how Canada has overseen this disintegration of Haitian of, of Haitian um, 
political life, of Haitian security, of just, you know, Haitian society, and particularly in Paul Prince. Canada is obviously a huge culprit. And and as uh, the the uh, Solidarité Québec IT press release uh, on, on, on this issue pointed out that, you know, these are the ones that, you know, lit, lit the fire in Haiti. And now they're now they're uh, uh, justifying um uh, putting out the flames, and they're the ones that need to, you know, be called on to put out the flames. But uh, yeah, so it, it's a it's a a grim situation. I mean, the the the, the simple demand, and I think the the one that should be front and center on Canada's role, discussing Canada's role in Haiti, is why are we part of this core group of foreign ambassadors that appointed Ariel Henry, who is overseeing the last twenty months of of disintegration, and this core group that's had all this influence over Haiti for the most of the past two decades. Well, and Henri is the unelected prime minister who, you know, doesn't know when to keep, uh, essentially. But Eva, is all is any of this money? I mean, who's who's designing where this so-called aid to the to the uh, militarized police in Haiti is going to go? And this isn't for beat cops. This is Canada's already sent armored personnel carriers, uh, weaponry. Um, they've had the Canadian military doing exercises and flying over, <laughs> saying that they're going after the gangs by air and by sea. I mean, th- this doesn't look like they're trying to make the neighborhood any safer for Haitians. Well, well I, I would say I'm of two two minds on that. Like, I, I think things from a strictly Canadian capitalist perspective, things have disintegrated so much in Haiti that they the Haitian elite and their allies among the Canadian, uh, you know, capitalist class that have interests in Haiti, they want a reduction in the in the uh, in the kidnapping, in the insecurity. Even even the wealthy, even even Piedsonville, the wealthier neighborhood of Port-au-Prince, way up the hill, even their security insecurity has hit hit a, reached a point where it's you know difficult to function. So so I do think that the Canadian government and the U.S. government wants. They want they want a, you know a more stabilized, undemocratic regime, right? They, you know, they, I mean, obviously there's all these contradictions within that. In that it's the PHTK, these this like oligarchic capitalists uh, or oligarchic gangsters that we've like sort of imposed over the past twelve years on Haiti, the political party that's been ruling for the last uh, twelve years. Um, uh, that's they've been working with these with these you know criminal elements that have empowered the the uh, criminal elements to to the point and I, and they did it in part for political reasons right to repress the population because they know that the majority population is not on board with their very regressive uh, uh, policies. Um, so that, but I think from a, from a strictly uh, a business perspective, things have spiraled out of control from a Canadian corporate and and uh, a U.S. corporate kind of perspective. So I think that they are of the Canadian government is of actually of two minds, and that they do want um, to sort of you know a, a more functioning state. Uh, apparatus that has, you know, greater control over over Pohol Prince uh, specifically, but simultaneously, the thing they the thing they're most concerned about is is they don't want those those uh, popular forces, the the uh, you know those who've been calling for poverty with dignity for the past thirty years in Haiti that we've worked to to sabotage uh, uh, repeatedly, mostly through the through the organizational structure of 
of, uh, of Famille Lavalas and, and, and uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the most popular politician in the country. What the thing Canada wants, you know, the least thing they want to work against the most, to make sure that they, they don't get power. So they prefer, you know, chaos than, than um, sort of a uh, popular sovereign, sovereignty-minded uh, uh, political movement from, from gaining power. Um, but they don't, I don't think they actually do want the current situation uh, uh, either. You, you mentioned uh, uh, Aristide when he was in, though. I, I recall that he disbanded the army in, uh, uh, what was it, um, 2004. Am I remembering that right? He disbanded the army uh, in 95, just oh, as, okay. just as his, his mandate. Uh, he was, of course, elected in 1990, took office in 91. He had lasted eight months, and then he was overthrown in a military coup. Uh, that lasted for more than three years, and he was uh, returned to office uh, for about eighteen months. And at the end of his um, his mandate, uh, is, this was part of the struggle when the Americans and Canadians were trying to um, get their people in in the military. They were supposed to, you know, uh, get the human rights abusers out of the military, and there was a sort of political battle going on between Aristide and. Uh, primarily Washington. And then Aristide responded by saying, okay, I'm just, I'm just eliminating the military and want to keep the ban, the, the military ban to <laughs> prevail the basic constitutional requirement to have some military, which you just kept the, the military banned, and, um, and then to um, uh, have a police force. And, uh, and I think that this was something that was, you know, widely viewed as a big, big step forward for human rights uh, in Haiti, because the military had really just been a tool of uh, of repression that again was created. The modern Haitian military was created during the U.S. occupation of uh, 1915 to 34, and so, but it was former military that the U.S. and the Haitian elite used to come uh, attack the elected government via the Dominican Republic between 2001 and 2004 to destabilize the Aristide government and ultimately take take control of uh, a few cities. That provided the pretext for the U.S. and Canada to send the uh, the uh, troops to uh, to physically uh, uh, remove Aristide from the uh, from the country. Well, and this in the context of decades of uh, uh, brutal uh, dictatorship of the Duvalier father and son, and, and uh, in before that too. For sure, for sure, and so uh, yeah, so the you know the Haiti, uh, the Haitian population has has had a long-standing bad relationship to state forces with uh, with guns. <laughs> they they have um, they have done a lot of horrors to uh, to keep the poor poor, and so in that context, any Canadian contribution, a hundred million dollars contribution to giving more guns to the to a state apparatus that is designed to work against uh, in a very aggressive way uh, the population is obviously something that should be uh, 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 questioned quite uh, quite aggressively, and I'd like to question that very much, but not. I'd like to question that in the context of the Canadian military. We're out of time for this segment, Eve. Can you stick around and we can we extend? For sure. Now I'm going to, for the rest of you. I'm going to take a break, and uh, I'll be back with uh, Persena Shan Mugathis. We're going to talk about his fantastic film series, Truth to the Powerless, uh, a series that Eve you took part in. I know uh, it's an investigation into Canada's foreign policy, which of course is your bailiwick as well. But stick around after the break for that. Thanks, Eve. Well, I got I got to think that we're not alone. 
I'm sitting in my house watching all this happen, and I, I've, I've arrived to a point where I just can't keep my mouth shut anymore. Guerrilla Radio, you're not alone. The economy collapsed back in 1929. The New Deal Throughout a lifeline, they passed laws back then to regulate the banks, to control the base impulses within the bankers' ranks. But by 1999, Glass-Steagall was repealed. The leash was off the bankers, and they had a field day investing our deposits in lots of risky bets, thinking only of the most profit they could get. It was 2008, and the panic was on. The banks were all collapsing, the boom times were gone, the panic was on. The panic was on. Homeowners couldn't pay all those mortgages subprime that the bankers had been selling so much of the time. So Congress took action and bailed out the rich with their message for the rest of us. Ain't life a bitch, it was 2008 and the panic was on. The banks were all collapsing, the boom times were gone, the panic was on. The panic was on. Then they passed legislation to re-regulate the banks. Kinda like the old laws called Dodd-Frank. Enter Jamie Dimon, John Stumpf, and Greg Becker Who threw around their money like some plutocratic wrecker And once they got the law repealed, they still had cash to burn To make lots more bad investments with a very high return Like any Ponzi scheme, it fell apart And then me and my fellow Americans are left to bail them out again Yeah, it's 2023 and the panic is on are all collapsing, the boom times are gone, the panic is on, the panic is on. Politicians on the boards of banks, they regulated, now maybe those old rules will again be reinstated, while we move into camper vans in a parking lot. Dreaming of the old days when we had a plot. Yeah, it's 2023 and the panic is on. The banks are all collapsing. The boom times are gone. The panic is on. The panic is on. It's 2023 and the panic is on. The banks are all collapsing. The boom times are gone. The panic is on. On. Welcome back to Guerrilla Radio, recorded April 2nd, 2023. Well, just what is Canada's place in the world? Generations of us have been taught we are global agents of good, fair-minded, and justice-seeking. You know, like whenever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, we'll be there. Whenever there's a cop beating a guy, you know, you know, you know how that goes. Well, that would be a great story if only it were true. Prasanna Shamugathis completed an advanced degree at one of Canada's world-class universities, but found beyond Canada's two solitudes, another bifurcation. 
education, one not in the curriculum, separating the real from an imagined nation. And so he says he set out on an epic three-year journey of discovery from coast to coast to coast and across the trackless prairies to document Canada as it is. The result is his docu-film series, Truth to the Powerless, an investigation into Canada's foreign policy. Welcome back to the show, Prasanna. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, it's my great pleasure, of course. Now, Prasanna, since we spoke last in uh, November past, uh, how's your series, Truth to Power, doing? Is it getting uh, is it getting the word out, getting penetration into the greater media sphere? Well, it's not <laughs> the the mainstream media uh, has you know completely uh, igno- ignored it, but uh, it's <laughs> which which we weren't surprised by. You know, there's there's actually a an interesting story. Um, uh, the the co-creator of this uh, docu series, uh, his name is Ryan Ellis, and uh, he's been in the film uh, industry for quite a bit, and uh, he uh, he has a friend who's a CBC journalist. And uh, you know he he you know he recommended uh, our docu series as a potential story. Maybe the CBC journalist would want to cover. The CBC journalist took an interest in the story and he had even written up an article about our about our docu series. You know, and uh, when he had sent uh, the article uh, to to be published, uh, the CBC their their publication board they they rejected it and gave no reason for it. So, you know, which was uh, uh, which was kind of strange, but that's just one instance. But our our docuseries has made uh, uh, appearances in a number of uh, uh, progressive uh, left wing uh, outlets, news outlets, Internet media outlets where we've done interviews promoting the docuseries and it's gone the word out around social media, Twitter and Facebook. So in that ways, uh, the docuseries has been getting around, but it's been completely ignored by the mainstream media. In this country, but uh, how about outside the country? Is it getting any purchase out there? Or, or do people just don't, aren't interested in Canada on the other side of the divide? I think it's it's really hard for people to comprehend this uh, uh, this notion that Canada isn't this benevolent, peaceful uh, a power that <laughs> that they've so long understood it to be. I remember I was doing a, an interview um, for a po- political org- uh, a political global affairs uh, organization that is based in uh, in Asia in Japan, and uh, in- initially uh, uh, when I had uh, told them about our docu series, they didn't even. Uh, take it seriously because they were like this notion that Canada could support overthrowing democracies in foreign <laughs> countries and could support, you know, uh, the Saudi war in Yemen, Canada. No. And then they began looking into our docuseries and they were like, wow, I had no idea. We got to interview you. And, uh, so they, they had interviewed us and, uh, uh, so, you know, but, but I think that's just the thing. Uh, so many other, uh, you know, people in other countries, this notion that Canada, that we're not this benevolent power we claim to be, uh, that's just so incomprehensible to them that they, I think they just don't want to engage with the content because it just goes so out of uh, what, out of their common understanding. It's like saying Santa Claus is a serial child abuser. I mean, they it might be true, but please, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to disappoint the children. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I saw you on a foreign uh, online on a, uh, a foreign getting interviewed by a foreigner, an American, uh, Lee Camp, a very uh, um, uh, estimable uh, uh, discloser of secrets of all sorts. And uh, how uh, how did you hook up with Lee in the first place? Lee uh, Camp, I'd I'd watched I'd watched his uh, his program when it was on RT. And unfortunately, as a result of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he's been taken off RT. Uh, a lot of his programs have been removed on uh, you, uh, removed off uh, YouTube and uh, in all these different uh, uh, media websites. Uh, so uh, that's how I initially knew of Lee Camp. But I know that he since then has kind of run this. Uh, this uh, web series online on Facebook and on Twitter, and that's how he's getting his his message out. So I decided, you know, let me contact him and tell him about our in docu series because I know that you know he focuses a lot on foreign policy and very much likes to criticize, you know, the atrocities of uh, uh, of the West. So I felt this is something he might be interested in, and sure enough, he was and. Uh, you know, it, I'm very glad he had me on because you know it was uh, it 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 exposed our docu series uh, to Americans and to just a wider audience as well. Yeah, and I, I caught that up at uh, at mintpressnews.com, and and he's he's called it uh, Canada is part uh, of the U.S. war machine, and and you and he have an extended conversation and cover a lot of uh, the docu series. It's in six parts. Maybe you could, for those who didn't catch the November conversation we had or Lee Camp interview, can you sort of give a, a thumbnail of what the what your the project looks like? Yeah, so it, the uh, the doc the uh, the docu series is called "Truth to the Powerless: An Investigation into Canada's Foreign Policy." It's a six-part docu series, as you mentioned, and so we kind of uh, uh, start from uh, the 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 World War II era, the post World War II era, right up until the present time uh, in terms of Canada's foreign policy. So we begin the docu series looking at how Canada had actually supported Nazism and supported fascism, contrary to public uh, belief. And uh, Canada had uh, played an instrumental role in NATO and in uh, opposing um, uh, uh, independence movements in the developing world that were fighting against the colonial occupiers like the uh, like the British and, and uh, the Belgians. And we had... Uh, we had supported suppressing those forces, and then we talk about Canada's support for apartheid South Africa, Canada's support for uh, uh, apartheid Israel. Uh, we talk about Canada's support for the war in Iraq, the first, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and the war in 2003. Contrary to public belief, Canada played an instrumental role behind the scenes in supporting the second invasion of Iraq in 2003. We talk about. Canada's uh, invasion, intervention, its war in Afghanistan, its uh, NATO invasion in Libya. Uh, we talk about also Russia, Ukraine as well. Towards the end of the fifth uh, episode, we, that we talk about that as the legacy of NATO, the legacy of NATO expansionism. And what's interesting about this docu series is that we interview the politicians that are responsible for formulating, advocating, championing Canada's foreign policy, 
And we also interview the academics and dissidents that are challenging Candace foreign policy. So we interview both, uh, the, you know, the establishment figures and we also interview the individuals that are challenging the establishment. That's what's so unique about this docuseries. You know, one prominent instance is we are last episode, episode six, we devote significant uh, uh, attention to Canada's role in uh, Haiti in 2004 in overthrowing the democratically elected leader of Haiti, the first democratically elected leader of Haiti, Jean Bertrand Aristide. And we interview Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bill Graham, and Canada's Minister of Defense, David Pratt. We get the establishment narrative that Canada, oh, we were going in there to uh, uh, bring order to Haiti. Haiti was being infiltrated by these gang of rebels. and. We went there to bring order and we didn't take part in a coup. That's the establishment line. And then we interview academics uh, like Justin Pordor and activists like Eve Zengler. And we expose the real truth, how Canada uh, intervened you know, and played a role in uh, kidnapping the Democratic elected leader, Jean Bertrand Aristide. So we just we just reveal so many just uh, uh secrets that have been buried by the establishment. We just bring that to the fore by interviewing the establishment and those challenging the establishment. So that's kind of in a, in a nutshell. Uh, well, that, and, and that's a well, and that's a fantastic aspect of it, too, that you do get access to people that you, for this kind of a documentary, you wouldn't really expect to get access to, especially like uh, the, the former uh, minister, uh, Bill Graham. Uh, when we were speaking about it, we the fact that he died just uh, shortly after the film was released, he was really a, a dying man who must have known he was dying. And yet it, there's something of a Nuremberg trial aspect to this where he could sit there and tell you straight in the face on and off camera, we didn't do anything wrong. This, uh, this denialism, I, I would put it, it seems ingrained uh, in the perpetrators. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the interesting thing with Bill Graham is at the time he was, I was a student at the Monk School of Global Affairs. I was a grad student. He was my professor. So that at the time I did the interview. So uh, uh, I was risking potentially being kicked out of the Monk School because he had that much power. If he wanted to, he could have kicked me out. And but I said, I felt that this is a man who's who, I knew he had health problems. I felt that this was the last chance I would ever get to, uh, you know, confront Bill Graham and actually challenge his record because, you know, Bill Graham is, you know, just revered in the University of Toronto and, and just the uh, mainstream as this, you know, great diplomat, this great politician. I wanted to challenge him. I wanted to have that one opportunity, that last opportunity to challenge his record. And so I decided to, you know, really... Uh, grill him on uh, his foreign policy. We talked about Afghanistan, but we also talked about Haiti. And uh, he, he just continually just uh, just refused to uh, acknowledge the possibility that Canada committed any atrocities in Haiti. He, repeat, he repeatedly said that, you know, we were doing a peacekeeping mission there. We brought order there. There was no bloodshed, which was all false. And, uh, mm. You know, off camera, he told me, you know, uh, he, he recalled the story. He said, you know, one day I was walking down the street and um, 
some of these uh, these Canadians came up to me and they heckled me and they called me a war criminal for what I did in Haiti. And then his face, it looked so pained. He, he said, you know, I'm not a war criminal. I didn't I didn't I, I didn't I didn't do anything wrong in Haiti. You know, he, he looked so pained. The cameras are off. But you know, he's telling me this. So he has no reason to, to lie. But it was at that moment that I thought, wow, this guy genuinely believes everything he's saying is the truth. You know, it was at that moment where I, you know, I kind of discovered that uh, that the people in power, maybe they don't always know the truth. We begin this docuseries. The first scene of the docuseries is Noam Chomsky, who we interview. He's looking right at the camera and he's saying that. The people in power already know the truth. It's the it's it's the powerless who don't. So it's our responsibility to bring to light, to educate, to inform the powerless. The powerless are the general population. And so once we inform them, then they could they can mobilize and they could challenge those in power and they could bring about real change. That's why this docuseries is called Truth to the Powerless, because we're getting from uh, the powerful, the establishment line thinking that they really know the truth, but they're lying. And then we interview the activists and academics challenging that narrative. But when I interviewed Bill Graham, it was kind of this realization that, you know, afterwards that this guy really believes everything he's saying is the truth. And so then this brought about this, you know, conundrum <laughs> that, wow, you know, if, you know, if the powerful, the people in power actually know actually think what they're doing, you know, actually think, believe it's the truth, then what does that really mean, you know? Well, that sounds like a psychological or spiritual um, malady that they're unable to see truth or they invent a truth more palatable to them. Uh, do you explore that at all? The psychology behind the people pulling these levers that release the bombs and missiles that fall on the innocent and helpless i mean i i wish we i wish we we did but it's really we just kind of get their establishment views and uh you know uh, with the exception really with the exception of bill graham i never challenged any other politician uh that i interviewed because we interview ambassadors we interview the defense ministers we interview you know uh diplomats and, you know, member of parliament never challenged any one of them. The only person I ever challenged uh, when I was interviewing was Bill Graham. And that's only because I knew that he was dying. He was in his last days. And uh, I wanted to really press him on his record because I knew he was never pressed on his record in Haiti, especially. So I wanted to be that person to to finally tell him, you know, hey, I know what you did. You know, you have this mask on. That you're this benevolent <laughs> person, but I know the truth, and I want you to know that I know the truth. So that was, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> well, well, people, I'm old enough, uh, Prasanna, to remember Bill Graham and remember him when he was in power uh, before he became this uh, um, uh, this gray eminence uh, in the halls of academe. And he was an imposing guy, physically imposing, intellectually imposing. Certainly, a man that was. Uh, to hear him speak, he was absolutely devoted to uh, his vision of the way the world should be. So, yeah, I congratulate you for that. 
Uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Gorilla Radio. I'm speaking today with uh, Prasanna Shanmugathis. Prasanna has uh, he completed the film that we're ta- film series we're talking about, Truth to the Powerless, an investigation into Canada's foreign policy. I, I want to bang on this drum a little bit more, Prasanna, because it, it strikes me. I don't know if you saw. Harold Pinter's 2005 Nobel Peace Prize um, acceptance speech, Prize for Literature. But when he he talks about the American empire and the propaganda as that has created this image uh, of America around the world as being the good guy, despite all of the terrible things that they have obviously done, uh, he calls it almost witty this uh, this accomplishment of American propaganda. I wonder, though, with Canada, it seems maybe even wittier when you mentioned that uh, the Japanese uh, people that you spoke with and, and others, just they, they almost can't even see it as possible that Canada could be this dark player on the world stage. And for Canadians, too, it seems nobody wants to believe that. How do you think this is accomplished? I'm, I've I've always suspected it's just really good PR. It's just really good public public relations. You know, uh, you know the fact that uh, you know we have even in our education system in Canada, we're taught we're taught about Lester B. Pearson. He's this peacekeeping guy in Canada. We're known, you know, for the, we defuse the Suez crisis. But you know what you're not taught, you know, in Canada is how uh, Lester B. Pearson he played an instrumental role in uh, the partition of Palestine. He played an instrumental role in you know, uh, creating this condition which led to the expulsion of Palestinians, the brutal bloodshed, the, Nak- the Nakba, the establishment of the state of Israel. You know, you're not taught about how Lester B. Pearson actually supported uh, the Vietnam War, uh, how you know, uh, on behalf of the United States, Canada, under Lester B. Pearson, delivered bombing threats to North Vietnam, which is an egregious violation of international law. And, and uh, you know, we uncover that all in this docuseries. But, you know, you have this huge, you know, uh, media propaganda of Canada being this peacekeeping country. And, you know, the, the world, the mainstream media, global outlets, media outlets around the world just kind of adopt that. And this this narrative of Canada being this peaceful nation that allows us to covertly do things for the United States that the United States, you know, can't necessarily, uh, you know, always get away with, you know, publicly that they may they might face censure publicly. So we as Canada, we kind of do things covertly for the United States and uh, our role in Iraq uh, in 2003, the the covert support that we provided is just one example of how we can covertly do things. Uh, for the United States while <laughs> publicly having this narrative that, oh, we're not going into, into into Iraq. We need a UN Security Council resolution. This is Canada's position as the peacekeeping nation, but covertly we will provide you all the support that you want to, to uh, carry out this invasion. Well, and the country enjoys this snow white mantle of do-gooderism around the world that it can say something like, we're not going to go into Iraq but at the same time, it can go on the world stage and not condemn the United States for what they're doing, but say, "Oh, we understand what America is doing here, but we just can't. We just don't feel we can get involved." But there's no condemnation. I don't think mm-hmm. uh, there was ever a word of condemnation from the liberal government of Jean Chrétien uh, against the Iraq invasion and uh, while it was going on. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there was this. 
recently, uh, you know, a viral uh, clip with uh, Eve Zengler. He had confronted uh, the Minister of, uh, of Sports, uh, Pascal, and asked her, you know, uh, shouldn't we also, you know, if we're, go- if we're going to be boycotting Russian athletes, uh, shouldn't we, uh, as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, shouldn't we be boycotting uh, uh, American athletes as well for America's invasion of Iraq? And uh, what about that? And, you know, and that kind of went viral because it exposed this hypocrisy, you know, that uh, while Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine is is uh, uh, is is worthy of strong condemnation. What about you know what the United States did in Iraq and the fact that Canada supported that covertly as well? Why why aren't these two things being treated uh, the same? Or the fact that the Canadian embassy in Kiev uh, housed and sheltered uh, people that were planning to overthrow a democratically elected government in the weeks prior to the Maidan Square Mm -hmm. uprising and massacre, and that Canada has played an active role throughout training and supplying uh, the coup government there in in its war against the eastern provinces of the former Ukraine, Mm -hmm. um, all of which I I would argue could be uh, war crimes. This isn't history, though. I mean, what you're talking about is history, but it's history that's an ongoing story. When you're talking about Haiti and Canada's role in overthrowing that uh, democratically elected uh, government, uh, the government of uh, Aristide in 2004, well, just these past weeks, uh, Canada seems intent on interfering in Haiti. They said they were going to send $100 million, uh, I don't know, about two weeks ago now to Haiti on top of uh, armored personnel carriers and and other money and sending the, the military, the Canadian military down there to fly over and do reconnaissance all in the name of keeping the peace uh, and and for the betterment of the Haitian people. What what should we know about what's going now? Are you following the situation in Haiti today? I mean, our, uh, our media has been, you know, uh, the mainstream media has been, you know, portraying this as a, you know, uh, the situation where in Haiti, where there's just these, you know, there's this chaos and disorder, you know, gangs of rebels are on the street and, you know, uh, uh, and, and, you know, they're, it's kind of there's there's kind of some parallel here between the situation now in 2004 where it, you know the media is portraying this chaos and disorder and you have the United States you know kind of coming to Canada and saying you know we need you to intervene on this you know the fact that in 2004 Canada intervened it was uh, you know we played a significant role because we're a francophone country we have this global image as a peacekeeping nation so we were able to do things in Haiti which the United States wasn't able to do and that was something that you know Bill Graham even t- talked to me about when I interviewed him. And uh, you know, with respect to the present case in Haiti, you have the situation where it's being portrayed that uh, there's this chaos and disorder. But a lot of the Haitians that are protesting are you know calling for democracy or calling for uh, 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 an overthrow of uh, uh, of, of the uh, U.S. Western appointed leaders that uh, you know. Uh, that the situation has been increasingly destabilized, you know, uh, most notably since 2004 when Aristide was expelled, but also since the assassination of Jovenel Moise, the the Haitian president. And what we've seen is we we've never we haven't seen a democratic, uh, free and fair election in Haiti. Which, if that were to ever ever happen, the the Famille Lavalas party, Aristide's party, 
would win overwhelmingly. But obviously, Canada, the United States don't want that because if that happens, then uh, the Haitian poor, they can finally live to a, uh, a, a level of certain dignity, which if that were to happen, they can have, you know, uh, adequate health care, uh, uh, schooling, uh, malnutrition rates would go down. They can have, uh, you know, uh, increased literacy. And if that were to, that was ha- a lot of that was actually happening under uh, Aristide's uh, uh, rule, under the rule of the Lavalas party when they were in power during the 90s and er- early 2000s. But the United States, Canada did not like this because it was setting a bad example. If a poor country like Haiti can better itself, then this would significantly threaten our our allies in Latin America, and then it would also threaten our biggest ally, Mexico, uh, because then Mexico would uh, want to take things under its own control, expel the, uh, the international corporations that are in there, and this would uh, negatively impact the Canadian, uh, the Western corporate establishment. So that's why we can't have uh, any genuine democracy in Haiti. And a lot of this, uh, uh, a lot of this, uh, current news that's going on about the situation, the chaos and disorder in Haiti right now is kind of being framed for, once again, the West to go in, establish law and order, quote unquote, akin to 2004, and once again, to really solidify a strongly Western-backed leader that will be uh, submissive to the corporate interests of the West, to the corporate interests of companies, Montreal uh, companies like Guild and Activewear, which is the largest uh, blank t-shirt making company in the world where uh, it, the t-shirts are made by Haitian sweatshop laborers. You know, th- that is the interest that Canada wants to secure and the United States want to, wants to secure in Haiti. Well, I've seen reports too that there's a um, secretive offshore oil drilling going on in, in Haitian controlled territory. I, I don't know if that's true or not. It wouldn't surprise me, but there's long been rumors that there's a rich uh, oil and gas field in the, in the area, in the shallow waters of the Caribbean there. Well, we're fast running out of time, Priscilla, but uh, tell me, I, I would like to talk about uh, Libya as well and, uh, and what Canada did there and, and how. Uh, Canada uh, likes to put itself forward as a big friend of Cuba and how that's uh, disingenuous to be kind to Canada. But we're at, fast out of time for that. W- what are you doing now? What, what's your, you, I asked you this in November, what your next project was. And you said, geez, look, I've been doing this for three three years. <laughs> you know, give me a break. Well, yeah, and, I, and so, okay, I gave you a break, but now you've had your break. What are you doing now? <laughs> well, right now there's just a, uh... A number of different, pro- you know, projects that I'm. Uh, oh, you're okay, to- okay. You're you're keeping it close. <laughs> you're keeping your cards close to your vest. Okay, that's fair enough. All right. Well, well, uh, Prashana Shanam Mugathas, you can find uh, go to truth to the powerless.com. You can find this fantastic uh, docu-series, six episodes, as Prashana says, uh, and it, and again, it's just so important because in Canada we. we Next to Eve Angler, as you mentioned, uh, we—I don't know how where we find out about the the true image of this country, both at home and abroad. It just doesn't seem available. Absolutely. Okay, well, well, thanks a lot, Persana, for coming on. And I also want to thank Eve Angler, who you mentioned, uh, for coming on in the first half of the show some days ago. Uh, and good luck, continued good luck with the series, uh, Persana. And I do hope we get a chance to speak again. 
Thanks so much, Chris. It was 2008 and the panic was on. The banks were all collapsing. The boom times were gone. The panic was on. The panic was on. Homeowners couldn't pay all those mortgages subprime that the bankers had been selling so much of the time. So Congress took action and bailed out the rich with their message for the rest of us. Ain't life a bitch? It was 2008 and the panic was on. The banks were all collapsing. The boom times were gone. The panic was on. The panic was on. Then they passed legislation to re-regulate the banks. Kind of like the old laws called Dodd-Frank. Enter Jamie Dimon, John Stumpf, and Greg Becker, who threw around their money like some plutocratic wrecker. And once they got the law repealed, they still had cash to burn to make lots more bad investments with a very high return. Like any Ponzi scheme, it fell apart, and then me and my fellow Americans are left to bail them out again. Yeah, it's 2023, and the panic is on. Banks are all collapsing, the boom times are gone, the panic is on. The panic is on. Politicians on the boards of banks, they regulated. Now maybe those old rules will again be reinstated while we move into camper vans in a parking lot. Dreaming of the old days when we had a plot. Yeah, it's 2023 and the panic is on. The banks are all collapsing. The boom times are gone. The panic is on. The panic is on. It's 2023 and the panic is on. The banks are all collapsing. The boom times are gone. The panic is on. Moscow, Tokyo, New York, Gorilla Radio is everywhere. Online at gorilla-radio.com. Everywhere, all the time. Chicago, Jakarta, Helsinki, Cape Town, Sao Paulo, Manchester, Bangalore, and somewhere in Russia.